three from 19. Yes! Bibby. Big three-pointer for the rookie from Arizona. Big Country Reeves needs to rebound from what was a terrible season. Does everyone like basketball? With the second pick in the 1999 NBA draft, the Vancouver Grizzlies select Steve Francis from the University of Maryland. This is, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the uncompromisingly niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast. I'm Jeremy Allingham. This is game one of the Grizzlies' third season. It's the with the second pick debut of Antonio Daniels, Otis Thorpe, Brian Hill, not to mention Ivan O'Neubill. I'm here with my co-host, the Ed Wernick of Vancouver Rec League Curling, Justin Hurryhard McElroy. How you doing, Justin? You know, that gives too much credit to me. He won a couple of championships. I'm doing good, Jeremy. Uh, I think we deserve a round of applause for getting through two seasons of Vancouver Grizzlies basketball. Yes. Uh, seasons. Ten games so far. We have five more to go in this third season. Uh, it's our th- first game, man. If there's five games, more to we've go. got. They've won 15 <laughs> games in their first season, of course. Bad for an expansion team. Somehow they were even worse in their second season. Only 14 wins. They can't be worse this season, right? They have to. They, we have to be turning the corner. There's some sort of redemption. Uh, just, we all know that it's going to be bad, but it's going to be bad in new and interesting ways. Like you said, we've got uh, Thorpe. We've got Antonia D- Daniels. We've got a new coach. We've got new optimism, and we're going to find new ways over the course of this season to break down why exactly this team failed to develop into anything at all over their six seasons of infamous history. Thank you for pulling me out of my uh, my depression and not only my, uh, you know, I was definitely procrastinating watching this game, but with that newfound energy that you've just given me, let's go. We're taking you back to November 4th, 1997 to the Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas. It's the Grizzlies taking on the Mavericks in a tilt between two Western Conference superpowers. Well, not so much. Uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies are off to... Uh, Kind of hot by their measure, one and one start. It's only the third game of the year. Having already lost to the Mavericks and beaten the Sacramento Kings, the Mavericks are 2-0, and having beaten the Sonics in addition to the Grizzlies. And before we get to the action, there's a lot of kind of uh, ruckus going on. It's a bit of a raucous pregame show here at the Reunion Arena in Dallas. home opener for the Dallas Mavericks and this is no longer the Jim Jackson, Jamel Mashburn, Jason Kidd, 3J era of the Mavs. No, they've moved on. This is now the Michael Finley, Sean Bradley and a bunch of guys. We'll get to that later, but there's a new optimism with this team. You know, like the Grizzlies, uh, this was a team that struggled a lot in the mid-90s. I always had it circled on my calendar as this is a gettable game for Vancouver. But like you said, home opener for the Mavs. They are amped. They got a bunch of weird things going on. They got the requisite mascot jumping through the fire to do a slam dunk. They've also got a strange arrangement of the national anthem. <laughs> Yeah, well, let me talk about uh, the mascot that you said first. This is a mascot named Mavs Man. 
you know, a, a marketing team of 25 geniuses sat around for weeks coming up with that one. This is truly one of the worst all-time mascots I've ever seen. This uh, is born from like the, the nightmares of children. This man has basketball um, skin, if you know what I mean, like the, the mm -hmm. leather of a basketball with the seams. That's his skin. He has a kind of a basketball face and head. He's wearing a cowboy belt, of course, because it's Dallas, and has a hauntingly insane smile. And as you said, dunks through a ring of fire. This being the home opener, there sure are a lot of empty seats there in Dallas. They're about 4,000 short of a sellout. And there's kind of this vibe of forcing that Dallas may be good. We've got the announcers saying, you know, they've won the first two games. The announcers, Jim Durham and Bob Ortigal, um, they, they've won their first two games. This is a good team. We'll see what they're like this season. I mean, Vancouver Grizzlies fans know all about 2-0 starts. <laughs> and um, after that bizarre rendition of the national anthem, they bring out a hype man to trash talk the Grizzlies. Do you know who it is that's on this bench? The USA Today NBA Basketball Team of the Week on pace to win 97 games, 97 and 0, division leading, number one team in the nation. Now, on this side, And he mentions that the Mavericks are on their way to a 97-0 season. And he's like the fifth person to mention that the Mavericks are USA Today's team of the week. Which I was like, holy shit, you guys. You guys are grasping at straws so bad if it's the USA Today team of the week that's really turning your crank. So that pregame stuff was... Uh, was a lot to take, but uh, kind of entertaining as well. I don't think any team had the standing to trash talk one another in 1997. After the weirdness of the opening ceremony, we see the starting lineups. For the Mavs, like I said, it is a mishmash team. We're between the Jason Kidd era and uh, the Steve Nash Nowitzki era. And so we have Michael Finley, Sean Bradley, who we mentioned, and then longtime veteran A.C. Green, Khalid Reeves, who was a hot rookie at one point and then became a journeyman for a while, and Hubert Davis. This is a team of some guys. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's interesting because there's a bit of a consistent narrative for us on the podcast here because we watched Khalid Reeves and Sean Bradley with the Nets last season. They were traded in the previous year in February from the Nets for a package that included Sam Cassell, Chris Gatling, and Jim Jackson. But uh, yeah, it is true. Aside from Michael Finley, we're definitely remembering some guys here. And it's interesting as we get into the first quarter action, as you know, Justin, I have a deep, visceral disdain for watching Sean Bradley play basketball, but he comes out with a bit of a fire out there. He was bringing it. I do want to, we've got to talk about the Grizzlies uh, lineup though, uh, because this starting lineup is what Stu Jackson, I believe, thought would be a good dependable unit for the entire season with solid players in all five slots. We got Big Country and Reef. 
who we know about, of course. We got Anthony Peeler back for a second year as the shooting guard. Maybe his first season was up and down, but certainly showed enough sparks. And then we got his big two offseason acquisitions. At the point, replacing Greg Anthony, Antonio Daniels, fourth overall pick, putting him into the starting lineup right away. Controversial choice. And then at power forward, Otis Thorpe traded four for a first-round pick. We'll get into that more. These are guys that projected one through five as, at the very least, rotational players for any NBA team. That's true. And, I mean, the Antonio Daniels thing, as much as you might argue that he shouldn't start, I mean, when Lee Mayberry is the other, uh, the other idea there, I mean, you can see why they want to throw the rookie into the fire, though he doesn't fare too well, as we will discuss later, on to the first quarter action. Yeah, and it is actually a very good start for the Grizzlies. We get Antonio Daniels making a nice jumper. We get uh, Anthony Peeler with a layup. We get a great reef and one. There's a foul on Bradley. The basket is good. Sharif Abdurrahim. With his back to the basket, he has a variety of moves inside, and he likes to go all the way to the iron. He likes to get in tight. He's a very good finisher when he does make the move. Some guys don't like to. It is 7-2 early for the Grizz. Like you said, Sean Bradley shows some uh, agility early on, blocks two shots, then he scores himself, but then we get another AP three-pointer. There's another reef dunk, and the Grizz are up 12-4 early. The crowd, empty to begin with, is out of it. And we're seeing the Grizz have some motion on offense that is pretty cool to see. Yeah, so this is the thing. is I, I always, when they start posting up so much because it's such um, a contradictory thing to see as opposed to my modern basketball watching. I always start a little tally of how many post-ups, how many post-entry passes there are. And just like the Brian Winters era, there are a lot. There's eight Sharif Abdurrahim post-entry passes in the first quarter. However, something is very, very different about this offense under Brian Hill, and that is the pace. The pace is cooking. They're moving the ball. If they can't enter it, they swing it. They swing it back. They put it into the post. They kick it out of the post. Reef fights for better position in the post. They re-enter it. He makes a move. He scores. Sharif looks unbelievable in this quarter to the point where I'm going like, well, I mean, first of all, the announcer says that he's one of the best players in the NBA, and I go, Hell yeah, he looks like it. He's got springs in his legs. He's attacking the bucket. He is the absolute cream of the crop in this game. In the first quarter, it's not even close. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. And I'm going like, this guy looks unbelievable. He finishes the first quarter with 15 points on 6 of 10 shooting. Country's got some spark. They look really good out there. They end up on a 26-12 run to start this quarter. I, I do want to do a little bit of fact check on the the offense now as high pace the entire time. It's they start that way. <laughs> uh, things take a turn, shall we say, without spoiling the entire game. But yeah, it's looking good for them. Even their backups are looking not bad. We get the standard Lee Mayberry endlessly dribbling to nowhere game, but he gets it to Reef, who scores. We get Pete Chilcutt in the game. He's spry in there, gets an offensive rebound and putback, really energetic there. And then we finish with a big country dunk with two seconds left in the quarter. The Grizz ended up 30-18, to 18, 12 points up. This is the wave of the future. Season three, baby. Let's go. Nothing can go wrong. Absolutely pumping them. Woo. It was unbelievable, man. They just absolutely took it to them. And a Vancouver Grizzlies 30-point quarter. I mean, how often have we seen that before? That's high-paced offensive action. 
at its finest. And with the first quarter done, that brings us to our first segment of the game. Extra, extra, the Reef Review. I mean, it's no longer a surprise seeing Reef dominate down low now that he's not a rookie and uh, he's a second year player we've seen this a few times but it's still something it's exciting to see now he gets double teamed quickly because every team knows what's going to come up but he still just has such a presence of mind and such quickness around the hoop to make something happen possession after possession at least in this first quarter yeah we've graduated from rookie season Sharif this guy should be on the all-rookie team. This guy, he's really turning into a great player. They've, the Grizzlies have got one here with Sharif Abdurrahim to just straight up like, this dude's one of the best players. Well, I mean, for sure, one of the best scorers in the league and, you know, becoming one of the best players in the league. And it was to the point where I started during the game clicking around and going like, man, how, where did he fit in kind of that paradigm of best forwards in the NBA, best players in the NBA? And I quickly see that Sharif finished the season sixth in points per game in the NBA, in the entire NBA, and fourth in total points in the NBA. And I'm going, man, why wasn't he an all-star? And I start rushing to kind of compare to see, you know, why wasn't he there? And, and you know, you quickly see the names, Kevin Garnett, Karl Malone, Tim Duncan, and you go, okay, maybe not. Even though Duncan was a rookie, but he had way better numbers than Reef. And then they throw in Vin Baker, and I go, come on. Vin Baker, Sharif should have been on that all-star team. You dig a little deeper. Vin Baker's offensive numbers are about the same, a little worse than Reeves, but his defensive numbers are like night and day, a million times better. So he didn't quite deserve that all-star nod, but that's kind of the idea of the level that he's reaching here. He's, you know, top 25 in the league, top 30 in the league, and climbing fast, and really a mature enough player in his second season to kind of take over long stretches of the game. And I mean, I think the one thing with, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing without ruining it here is he has a scorching first half, 20 points, four rebounds, two assists, a block, a steal on seven of 13 from the field and six of eight from the line. But he plays the first 14 and a half minutes of the game, almost a full 15 minutes without sitting. Then he sits three minutes and comes back again. And I'm going, I know this was in an era where 40-minute, 42-minute games for the the Stars was not unusual, but, I, you know, we'll see where this leads, but uh, I don't think it's the greatest idea to run your superstar 15 minutes straight right off the top. And, and we'll see what happens throughout Season 3 as we watch these games, but certainly by the end of Season t- 2, the Grizzlies sometimes got into a bad habit of having the offense rely too much on Reef's prowess in the post and his ability to create something once they got him there. And certainly we saw in this game a little bit of a reliance. One could argue as we go on an over-reliance on uh, him being option 1, 2, and 3 in terms of what they wanted to do. But when you look at your other options on offense and when you look at how skilled and poised he is, it is hard to argue too much for them trying to go back to that well again and again. Uh, We may not uh, continue doing this segment every quarter, every first quarter for this season because uh, we've broken down his game a lot, but it was a pleasure to watch that at least at the beginning of this season. Nothing has changed in terms of just how good he is. We're just no longer surprised. Time for the second quarter to begin. 
And at the beginning of it, it's still going pretty good for the Grizz. And a lot of it is the one and only Pete Chilcutt. Woo! Pete Chilcutt uh, checks into the game, and he's just an energy guy out there. He's ripping around. He rips a couple boards, a couple nice assists, even makes a bucket. I was really impressed with him out there. And, uh, you know, as always, I'm wishing he'd take a few more threes with my anachronistic view of modern basketball, trying to uh, force it into the square peg into the circle hole of 1990s basketball. But uh, I really enjoyed the Pete Chilka experience for this game. Uh, we also have developing a, a nice little two-man game between uh, one Otis Thorpe and one Brian Reeves down low, both of them using their bodies. Thorpe having some really nice depth passes uh, low to get a couple of easy putbacks. Thorpe also in transition, looking good. You know, for the, he was 34 years old at the time. He's looking pretty spry out there for the Grizz as they keep up this big lead early in the second. We'll talk about him, you know, in our halftime segment here, but I, I loved Otis Thorpe. It was like that first game when we watched Kenny Gaddison, just with that massive body, just like the body that kind of like hulks over everyone else tall muscular he's in control he's a bit slow moving but in the good way of like i'm controlling this game this is the pace i want to play at and he's got that high like you said that high low going with big country and at one point the big boy feeds him and he's like under the hoop and catches it and you're like oh he's gonna be stuck under there reeves underneath the park for the reverse dunk notice the quickness off the floor he is so quick off the floor otis thorpe and so strong Nope, no problem. Yeah. Just goes up, reverse dunks it, and you're like, man, I'm starting to really like, I'm starting to love Otis Thorpe here. I know that uh, this love affair can't last forever, but uh, that was fun to watch out there. The six for 10 from the field, 16 points, 14 rebounds. Uh, that's more than tidy. That's pretty darn fine. But then the Mavs start pushing into that 14 point lead a little bit and it comes from a player that new coach brian hill actually had a fair bit of experience with yeah that's right it's interesting here because my second line on my notes from the second quarter is dennis scott lethargic it's funny because dennis scott always looked a little bit out of shape he's yes. always a little soft <laughs> not soft as far as like grit or whatever that uh, just a guy who plays is. in your gym whose best years were maybe a decade yeah, ago but he always he looked like that even like early in his career right so you know dennis scott lethargic quickly turns into dennis scott is absolutely scorchingly hot fire coming out of his head scott over abdurrahim dennis scott has broken it hitting everything he's seven for 12 for 14 points in the second quarter he doesn't even hit a three like you know at that era he's one of the three-point marksmen of of the time and he's seven for 12 from the field all two-point field goals and absolutely lighting the grizzlies up and it's one of it's really done in a i mean he's making all the shots so you're impressed but it's just this unassuming mid-range not explosive we know it's like anti-explosion no. <laughs> it's just like almost magnet to the ground but just that sweet stroke and just hitting everything and man he really got the mavericks back in this ball game and he had swagger too which is funny when it's just you're slowly ambling down the court and uh, getting some old man mid-range jumpers uh, and i appreciate that but i appreciate that about dennis scott like it's funny yes. because now in hoops 
we kind of expect a bit of that trash talk, a bit of the chest thumping. It's a lot more brash these days. Back then, it was still kind of that conservative paradigm, like just put your head down and play the game, young man, like that kind of BS. And he broke that mold. And like, I don't think I really understood that at the time. But now looking back, seeing that swag, he's tapping the tattoo of his dad on his shoulder. He's like talking to the crowd. He's talking. He's smiling. Even when he gets a bat or like what he thinks is a bad call from the ref. He's smiling. He's laughing. Like he was having a good time out there and like legit helped me get through this game. It was better than any Dennis Scott moment I remember from his one season with the Grizzlies later on. Uh, Scott is feeling it. Michael Finley is feeling it. The Grizz aren't exactly collapsing, but they're not keeping pace quite as much. Halftime comes after a 17-7 run for the Mavericks to end the quarter. The Grizzlies see their 14-point lead down to just four. It's 54-50. to Still ahead, but a little bit of a worrying sign. And speaking of worrying signs, our halftime segment... What did Stu do now? Oh boy, what did Stu do now? It's interesting, in the pantheon of Stu Jackson terrible moves, this is one of the most well-remembered, at least broadly speaking. I don't know how much people remember the small strokes, the finer details of it, but if you say Otis Thorpe to pretty much any like hardcore Vancouver Grizzlies fan, they will bristle immediately. Interestingly, if you say Otis Thorpe to any hardcore Grizzlies fan, they'll bristle. If you say Darko to someone who got deep into the weeds of the 2003 NBA draft and who got what team, they might also know Otis Thorpe. So the backstory here, it's the offseason. The Grizzlies believe that they need veteran leadership. They also believe that there are two places that they need to address our point guard and sort of another power forward type. They see Reef Moore as a small forward, even though he's pretty big because he's sort of lanky. And so Stu Jackson looks around the market, sees a player that wants to get out of his current market that is a little bit disgruntled, but he's won a ring. He has athleticism. He has smarts. He can bring that veteran presence. And he decides... I'm going to trade for Otis Thorpe, and I'm going to trade him for a first-rounder that has to be given at some time in the next six years. We're going to be a good team sometime in the next six years, right? (laughs) I mean, that's one of the most bizarre—so a couple things on this trade. Otis Thorpe was a hell of a player. We get that. He was that kind of consummate power forward. 17, 18, 20, and 10 guy with the Kings and the Rockets in the late 80s and the early 90s. But at this point, he's 35 years old, he's in decline, and he's 8 to 10 years out of his prime. And huge kudos to Rick Sund, who was the general manager of the Detroit Pistons at the time, for his patience in this bizarro trade. I had to like dig a little bit because it's like, oh, the Grizzlies had to convey the pick. It had to, first of all, it had to fall between 2 and 18, and it had to convey by 2003. And I'm going, wait a minute. That's not how I understand protected picks to work. Like we're used to, Mm. it needs to fall in this range or it has to not be the first to five picks and then you get it. Or after five years, it turns into a second or whatever it may be. No, this was a Vancouver Grizzlies pick your own poison trade. It was Mm -hmm. every June 1st, the Grizzlies got to decide whether or not to give their first round pick to the Pistons. So like in a way, 
it was almost always destined to be that last year based on how much they sucked and based yes. on just like the way general managers and teams and owners kind of work on that like next season basis. How do we sell tickets? How do we put a winner on the floor? There's almost no way that they're doing it before they absolutely have to, right? Yeah, and it makes sense if you're Stu Jackson and you're optimistic about Stu Jackson, more optimistic than any human in the world should be optimistic about <laughs> Stu Jackson's prowess at picking players. Uh, the problem is if you're giving up a first-round pick for veteran leadership, you probably want to make sure that that veteran leadership wants to, you know, lead with your team and be there. And pop quiz, Jeremy, how many games did it take for Otis Thorpe to demand a trade from the Vancouver Grizzlies? Uh, I seem to have some previous knowledge of this. <laughs> Zero. Zero games. In the preseason, he said, look, I don't, it's not my preference to be here. I'm winding down my career. I'd like to be with a playoff team. They asked him, Did, have you actually demanded a trade? He's like, that's between me and my agent, which is a yes. You've demanded a trade. You don't want to be here. And it just astounds me that Stu Jackson could give up one of the best assets you have as a team, a first-round pick for a crappy team that's probably not going to get good anytime soon for a player that doesn't even want to be there. No, it's stunning, stunning incompetence. I do wonder, I mean, this one, you have to rank this as more egregious, more grave and grievous, as we say, than the Steve Nash non-deal, because I guess a non-deal to me is a little bit more forgivable than forcing this number one pick out the door for this guy who you didn't check if he wanted to come. Oh, and our, uh, you know, the title of our podcast, this will repeat itself through history. Like, does he do any due diligence? Does he pick up the phone and talk to agents? Does he, t like, no. I don't understand. Is he in that, that goofy YTV war room by himself, just like dreaming up his fantasy team? Like the, the thing is, they also have George Lynch on this team who ends up being over the next five seasons a way more productive player than a broken down Otis Thorpe. But he thinks he needs this is the Stu Jackson problem time and time again. He says, I need to check this box of what a player should be. And he tries to get the best player for that box. And his idea for the box is bad. He should just look for the best player available again. I I get it. At the, I can't say I don't get it because I've seen enough Stu Jackson moves now to get it, but I just have to shake my head again. And just imagine even how much more fun this segment would have been if the Pistons had taken Carmelo or Dwayne Wade or even Chris Bosh rather than Darko. I mean, it would even put that extra nail deep in the coffin of, you know, the Vancouver Grizzlies and Stu Jackson's aptitude as a general manager. Well, I, and I think that's part of the reason why we don't remember it quite as infamously is that, that it ended up not being any of those players that the Pistons ended up choosing with that second overall pick in the 2003 draft when the Grizzlies ran out of time to become a good team. If that had happened, ooh, it would be something talked about in mainstream publications still to this day. Uh, but for a bonus halftime segment, before we go back to the game, Jeremy, uh, it's not like we necessarily look for old 90s NBA paraphernalia in our day-to-day -day time too much, but both of us got something over the past couple weeks. Yeah, kind of, uh, kind of as an aside here, a pretty kind of cool moment, big moment. You know, as a journalist, you get to meet a lot of cool people over the years, but very rarely do you get to meet your very own childhood hero, basketball hero. And I got the chance to meet 
the glove, Gary Payton, just last week or a couple weeks ago in Vancouver. He was in town for like a corporate investors event. He's like a spokesperson for a snack company. And I somehow had a connection. Uh, a good friend of mine who I've known for a very long time was involved. And he called me up and he's like, what do you think of Gary Payton? I'm like, uh, did something happen? What's going on with Gary Payton? And he's just like, just tell me. And I'm like, well, he was my favorite player for like 10 years when I was a high school basketball player. He goes, want to hang out with them? And I'm like, uh, yes. So anyway, long story short, I get invited to this thing. It is very corporate. It's a little, uh, you know, it's busy. There's like 75, 80 people there. I build up a little bit of liquid courage. I start schmoozing. I'm wearing my Sonics hat. Amazingly, I'm the only one in the bar wearing a Sonics hat. One of his buddies, GP's buddies, notices my hat. He kind of says, like, nice hat, man. I jump on the uh, the opportunity. I start shooting the shit with them. I'm hanging out, having more drinks, getting a little loose. The college football championship game is on, and me and his buddy started making wagers on what was going to happen in the second half. And the second we started competing, you might guess that Gary Payton sees, and he goes, Wait, 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 wait. What's the action here? He's a, he's a competitive fellow, <laughs> yeah, from what I hear. As we've heard. Um, and all of a sudden, I've got a bet with his buddy, and Gary Payton is on the same side of the bet with me. So now we're sweating a college football bet together in a bar in Vancouver. And I'm hanging out with them. We're getting looser. We're getting like a little more comfortable with each other. And I asked him a couple questions, but the turning point was I said to him, Hey man, did you know that in March 2000, you dropped 40 points just down the street from here at GM Place? And he kind of gives me the nod, the look like, yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure I was jogging his memory because it didn't like, his eyes didn't light up. But then... He doesn't remember every regular season game from 20 years ago. <laughs> against, against the Grizzlies? Teams. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but 40, I mean, you'd think he'd remember 40. But anyway, and I said, and you did it without making a single three-pointer. And he just, this was the moment he goes off. He's like, yo, yo, like, listen to this, listen to this. And now he's like yelling at his buddies and pointing to me to tell them the story about how he scored 40 without scoring a three pointer. And he's like, you know, we weren't about that back in the day. We were like, we weren't trying to make all those three pointers. And he was like, you could tell he was like proud about it. He was stoked that I had kind of like brought up this finite, you know, as we do bring up the, uh, minutia of 90s basketball and from there now we're like buddies and we hung out for like you know another 45 minutes or so and it was awesome man it was so fun sometimes the phrase never meet your heroes turns out not to be true uh i got some cool you know tickets from games in 1990 no man okay don't undersell this (laughs) i mean look i know it's no gp but like as i i think i uh, commented on your tweet it was like 80%, 80%, I'm so happy for you. 20%, I'm just dying of burning jealousy inside my soul. So tell us about this just gorgeous piece of memorabilia you got. Yeah, so from John Aspiri, who was uh, and is a journalist in Vancouver and covered a lot of uh, the NBA while it was here, he had, for whatever reason, a second copy of something that they gave out to media some employees and some you know season ticket holders as well which is basically a complete season ticket holder set so you're talking about 45 games or so when you include exhibitions and like actual tickets or duplicates of it but played as such like stitched together so you would have to tear one out 
saying the game, the logos for every single team on there as well, the price, you know, cool thirty seven fifty. Those were the Ooh. days, uh, and just what a time capsule of that era, including a giant version of the regular season home opener against the Timberwolves, that iconic game with the Chris King layup, and bless John for having duplicates of that, and just to have something like that, still fresh, still great condition, those colors, those fonts, those logos, mwah. Perfect. I just love it. It's like, I, I don't know. It's just for some reason, that's exactly the type of memorabilia I like, you know, like it's, it's of the moment. It's got, like you said, the logos and all that. And anyway, I was so stoked for you when I saw that. Yeah. So. And it's real and it ties into like a lived experience that people had, which is cool. And here we are reliving it, heading to the, the third quarter of Mavs versus Grizz. Indeed, third quarter starts, and we get a nice little back-and-forth happening between the two stars of the two teams. Both young guys, both will take very different paths for the rest of their NBA career to fame and greatness. Reef and Michael Finley. Reef gets in with a great uh, move where he's sort of stuck, can't really go anywhere, and somehow weasels out and gets a layup. Abdur-Rahim doubled up in the post this time. Now he makes the up-and-under move. 22 points for him and a six-point lead for Vancouver. He kept the uh, pivot foot planted and he was patient, finally found an opening. Finley gets a couple nice fast break points to get it close. We're really seeing who are the stars who have the energy early on in this third quarter for both these teams. Yeah, I'm really glad that play jumped out at you because that was the first thing I wrote down where he gets the ball, Sharif gets the ball in the post and he's been double teamed to this point a bunch. And instead of panicking and quickly passing out, kind of assuming that double team is coming, which you might expect from a younger player, he just holds the ball. He waits to see what happens. And they think, and he actually uh, kills his dribble. And they think that he's kind of trapped. He's in trouble. And he just does an up fake and steps through and uh, just makes a shot. And it just really a microcosm of how in command he was. And, you know, I think we'd be remiss not to mention the big boy, big country in this game. I kind of, I just really liked him as a third option. Like it was Reef, it was Thorpe, and then it was big country. And, you know, he had a, he, I mean, he played 41 minutes. He was the minute leader for the Vancouver Grizzlies, but uh, he has a really nice post up early in the third quarter. Bryant Reeves against Bradley. Slips inside. Come on! Reeves has eight points tonight. I just thought that, you know, at 14 points, nine rebounds, two assists, three blocks on seven to 16 shooting. I don't know. This is kind of like the role that big country Bryant Reeves should have been in. Maybe obviously not from the start, but like that's kind of where he should have ended up all along, you know? Yeah, when you're a third or fourth option. It was a quieter game, but an efficient game. But Finley is still pouring it on for the Mavs in this third quarter. He gets a three. He then has a highlight reel dunk. Ball, Finley has it. Holly going inside. Back to Finley for the dunk. <laughs> this crowd's going crazy. The Mavericks, the Mavs take the lead, and we're starting to see a couple things happen for the Grizzlies here on offense. Number one, they're not putting the ball into reap nearly as much for an extended period here in this third, to the point where even the announcer calls the Grizzlies out for it. Either shoulder. That's good defensively. Good help from Thomas. Best job they've done against Raheem is right there. And they strip the ball from him. It's out of bounds to the Grizzlies with 10 to shoot. See, they're giving that young guy something to think about now. Thomas is running at him. Bradley's running at him. When you do that to a youngster, 
Maybe you can cause him to be hesitant. I said maybe because he's an awfully good player. And number two, that movement that you were talking about with Brian Hill early in the game, it's just not happening at this point. It's a lot of just two sets into the post, trying to force things. And we go back to the Achilles heel for this team that we saw a lot in the second season when Greg Anthony was out especially. The guards aren't doing anything. Anthony Peeler is sort of silent. Lee Mayberry is Lee Mayberry. And Antonio Daniels, it's not that he's playing terribly in this game, but he's not penetrating or creating any offense of his own. No, I mean, the, the guards combined for six points in the second half. The pace slows, and their transition uh, defense is terrible as well. But yeah, let's talk about Antonio Daniels. This is something that we've been waiting to do based on him being the fourth overall pick and based on Stu not trading that fourth overall pick for Steve Nash, uh, as we may have mentioned and tweeted and got people all fired up about. It's weird. Antonio Daniels, and who knows, maybe Stu <laughs> fell victim to this. He kind of passes the eye test a bit. Like, he looks springy, he looks quick, mm -hmm. his handle looks nice. Like, he kind of looks like he belongs out there. He's got the lightning bolt cut into his hair. It, he, especially when you're comparing him to Lawrence Moden and Lee Mayberry. Well, exactly. Like, there is there is some spring, there is some life, there is some energy. But let's just say that the numbers don't end up working out for him. At one point during this game, the announcer says... Antonio Daniels can't handle Khalid Reeves, which like, <laughs> oh boy. Um, so his offensive rating for his rookie season is 93 and his defensive rating is 115. He is atrocious. 42% field goal, 21 from three, 66 from the free throw line. Minus one and a half VORP and minus five box plus minus meaning he's five points worse per 100 possessions than a replacement player this guy is simply not ready for the nba pretty much in any capacity in this game like i said he looks okay 10 points four assists one rebound on 5 12 shooting and minus 18 in the box score the worst out of anyone on the team by far and that's the thing like you don't see on like a possession to possession basis him being you know out of his depth and yet it's just little things again and again of not being able to create his own offense getting off of his man one too many times and just sort of losing them uh, among a bunch of uh, screens it's just little things again and again add up to the point where you look at the end of the game you know even in this one five from 12 from the field 10 points only four assists and again that minus 18 box score we'll see i'm sure over the course of the season we'll see maybe one or two good games ones that i remember from him you know i seem to recall a patent finger roll that like nine-year-old me really liked we'll see if that comes out at all but in this game he's just sort of too silent for a guy you're giving 33 minutes to <laughs> and expecting to man the point yeah i mean it's uh it's pretty much immediately disappointing to see. I mean, I guess when it's his third game and you're seeing it through that prism, you're thinking, okay, well, he'll grow into this. He'll get better and better. But the end of the season stats, you know, for a second there, I was like, oh, I wonder if we should do a, you know, watching big country, reef review, uh, Antonio Daniels, whatever. And it's like, no, we're not going to do that. Like as much as we are gluttons for punishment, I'm not going to force myself to do a terrible Antonio Daniels segment every game.
Sorry. Sorry. It, it was going to be called the, the Daniels Dispatch, by the way. <laughs> Reef uh, is quick out of uh, a double and gets a nice uh, little layup. The Grizz retake the lead, um, but the Mavs come back with an- another bucket as well, tying the game at 74. That crowd might be, you know, 25% empty, but they are loud at this point. They have made it all the way back from 14 points down, but it's still only one small game tied going into the fourth. But before we get there, it's time for... Better know a grizzly. And, and Jeremy, today we look at a player who played for the Grizzlies in the season before, but we never got to him just because the games didn't really work to highlight him. But this time we have an opportunity because he's playing spry in this one, plays 17 minutes in this game, plays every single game for the Grizzlies this season, as a matter of fact. And that is the one, the only, the buzz cut himself, Chili Pete Chilcutt. Yes, attaboy, Pete. So a uh, little bit of a, a deep dive in here to Pete Chilcutt from Sumter, South Carolina, drafted 27th overall by the Sacramento Kings in 1991. And I don't know why this was such a, a, a black spot in my Grizzlies memory. Did you know that Pete Chilcutt was 6'10"? Yes. Like he was, just, my, he was an know. awkward 6'10", I thought he was like, but he was... Yeah, I thought he was... <laughs> In my head, he was like six, 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 seven. No, man, this guy's like a legit power forward. Like, possible. I mean, I was gonna say he could play some center, but probably doesn't have the heft for that. Um, he ends up on the Grizzlies in kind of one of those crazy trades. Stu, you know, like in some sort of uh, manic state. Uh, Pete Chilcutt, Tim Bro, uh, the first draft pick that became Roy Rogers, the second draft pick that became Chris Robinson, the second draft pick, second round draft pick that came C.J. Bruton for three seconds sent to the Houston Rockets in June of 1996. Pete Chilcutt has a 584-game NBA career. Very nice. Uh, He played the most games with the Vancouver Grizzlies, which was 182. For the Grizzlies, he averaged four points, three rebounds, one assist, half a steal, half a block per game in 15 minutes per game. He shot 39% from three for the Vancouver Grizzlies, but you guessed it. He took one and a half three-point attempt per game. Wrong era for Pete Chilcutt. He could have made a lot more money uh, 15, 20 years later. Pete Chilcutt's career high was 25 points with the Houston Rockets in 94-95. And if you want some real Chili Pete minutia, did you know that in three years with the Grizzlies, he wore three different numbers? In 96-97, he wore 33 And then I guess Antonio Daniels wanted that number, so he changed. In 97, 98, he he lived out his destiny as number 23, a true great. And then in 98, 99, he flipped to number 32. So there's Pete Chilcutt for you. Those are good uh, peak shell cut facts. You know, from going from a team where in the 1995 NBA playoffs, he played 20 games for the Rockets in their championship run and, in fact, started in 15 of them to then becoming a rotational player for the Grizzlies for three seasons. Maybe been a little bit depressing to some, but I always thought he carried himself really good in Vancouver. Like you said, you look at his stats, maybe in today's game he becomes one of those consummate 3 and D guys, right? He's lanky. He shows good defensive awareness. Uh, the problem is, you know, for all of his good three-point shooting, 
His form for mid-range baskets was never there. Let me just get a couple stats up for you. You know, in this season that we're looking at, the 1996-97 season, he ends up shooting, oh, a good 97-98. He shoots uh, 350 from 3 to 10 feet away and 220 from 10 to 16 feet away. When it comes to sort of nimble, athletic, like mid-range athleticism, it was never really there for him. Uh, but you look overall at his uh, PER over, the course of those three seasons for the Grizz. You know, it's a 14.5, 12.6, and 9.4. Two of those certainly reputable when you're looking at your seventh, eighth, ninth player, which Shilkut was never asked to be anything more of. A uh, little bit of a fan favorite here. Played his role well, played it hard. If that was the case for every single Vancouver Grizzlies, maybe they play more than six seasons. Who knows? Yeah, he should have been camped out in the corner. We know that now. That's what uh, that that's where Pete Chilcott should have been. Fourth quarter underway. Can the Grizzlies go above 500 or not? On. Early on, it seems like they're going to be spry in this fourth quarter. Buck the famous fourth quarter trend that we know with this team. We get a Lynx jumper that gives them the lead. Another George Lynx jumper as well. He's feeling it. But Dennis Scott is feeling it too. Sets it up for Dennis Scott, who knocks out his third triple. He made sure he was behind the three-point line. Khalid Reeves. Penetration. Draw the defense. Dish the ball. He gets one three-pointer to tie it. Then a minute later, he gets another one. Dennis Scott feeling like the fourth man on the Orlando Magic again, feeling it this game now beyond the arc. Yeah, Dennis Scott is super swaggy out there. Like I said earlier, he's having fun. He's playing with the crowd. He's having a good time. Mike Finley is just boundless energy out there. At some at certain points, it seems like he's running circles around the Grizzlies, and just like the Grizzlies are dead out there, man. And like to bear out my hypothesis Dallas plays AC Green, Sean Bradley, and Dennis Scott all 12 minutes of the fourth quarter. Mike Finley plays 10 minutes. Conversely, Otis Thorpe and Sharif play only six and a half minutes each. Somehow, Country plays the whole 12 because apparently we're in Bizarro World. And Blue Edwards, out of nowhere, plays seven, seven and a <laughs> half minutes of the fourth quarter, and he's awful out there. He's slow, he looks very stiff. He's clanking shots. He's really contributing nothing. And if you want the linchpin or the proof of how bad the Grizz looked out there, at a certain point, the announcer says, I'm surprised that Sam Mack is not in the game. <laughs> this is where the Grizzlies had reached. A guy who hadn't even been on the floor once that game, the announcer's wishing they could see him. So I really just think they were running on fumes here. I just wanted you bring up Blue Edwards. I want to take a moment in the middle of the quarter when the Mavs are starting to assert their will on this, turn it from a back and forth anyone can lead to, oh, they're the ones in charge. Uh, we get a Bradley and one where Big Country is slow to react. And then Grizz go to Blue Edwards in the post. In the post. For whatever reason, it goes badly. The Mavs score. Timeout. They're down by three. Anthony Daniels then misses a three. Reef gets an air ball. Finley gets a long two. And the Mavs get up by seven points. The fans are going crazy. And it was just an inexplicable number of possessions in a row where there was no real form on offense and on defense, just no transition play whatsoever. Vancouver scores 13 points in the fourth quarter. They scored 30 in the first and 13 in the fourth. But they still had a chance. With 2.10 left, Anthony Peeler hits a shot 
to bring them within four to 91-87. And I guess Brian Hill looks at Thorpe, gassed. Looks at Sharif, gassed. Country, gassed. And he decides it's time to drop three straight pin-down jumper plays for Anthony Peeler. Like, it's just like, all right, basically, if Peeler hits these, we win. If he misses them, we uh, we lose. Brick, brick, brick. 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 Yeah. And then brick. Uh, Three in a row, and that is pretty much the game. Uh, There is one point, and and again, this team of clock management in the final two minutes of the game, they have a chance for... There's 30 seconds left in the game. They're down at this point by four. So they got a chance for a quick, you know, the, the whole... You score quickly four seconds. That way you don't have to foul. And instead, they just have no urgency for a quick bucket. And then it's Peeler shooting that long three with like 16 seconds left in the game. And it's just a series of decisions that show that this team, at least in game three, is not ready for prime time. And that's the thing is, you, and, and I definitely, as a viewer, was going, but wait, things started so amazingly well that we started with such energy. We started with such panache. Sharif, zero points. Zero rebounds, zero assists, zero. You see where I'm going here? Zero yeah, steals, yeah. zero. Literally, he didn't have a stat in any column aside for 0 for 2 from the field in six and a half minutes in the fourth quarter. And then my, my uh, neurons in a certain buried part of my brain started going, oh yeah, Sharif in the fourth quarter. And I'm not sure if this is the beginning of something or, or what here, but an absolute ghost show. In this fourth quarter, like like I could have gone over two out there. Well, I would have been like eighteen turnovers, but you know what I mean. Like, just nothing, not a single stat to speak of. Like that was wild. If season two of the Vancouver Grizzlies is about one step back, but developing this franchise forward that can carry your team, season three is about whether they can surround that new All Star piece with players around him that can support him, that can lift him up, that can do things in the fourth quarter. And we'll see how that plays out. Losing is learning. Uh, let's do three stars, Justin, before we go. Uh, third star, even though we just, you know, dumped on him a fair bit there. Reef dominated in the first quarter, held his own in the second and third quarter. 28 points for the Grizzlies. Uh, you got to give him the third. The second star goes to Michael Finley. 12 of 18 shooting. That is very tidy. And it was really his energy in the second and third quarter, that athleticism that gave the Mavs the boost, uh, really showed that Finley was going to be a key part of teams for a long time. And first, you know, I got to give it to Dennis Scott and his swag and his arrogance and his shooting. His three-pointers really turned the game for the Mavericks in the fourth quarter. And in the second quarter, if he doesn't get on fire there when the Grizz are sort of dominating it up by 14, who knows whether they get back into the game or not. Okay, so for my third star, I just can't bear to give it to Sharif after what I saw in that fourth quarter. That was... A disappearing act, the likes of which I've never seen. So I've got to go Otis Thorpe there because I get a feeling I probably won't get a chance to do that ever again. I really loved him out there. I loved his pace. I loved his presence. Uh, my second star was Dennis Scott, where you had him first. And my number one star was Michael Finley. Offensive rating of 125, defensive of 94. He's locking dudes down out there. So those are my three stars. And the Mavericks now are 3-0. and Their fans are going insane. They think they have actually turned a corner. But 
not all happy stories take one season to develop. The Mavericks then lose 12 of their next 13 games. They fire coach Jim Clemens. They put in Don Nelson. He's 16 and 50 for the rest of the season. Not great either. But during the next draft, they pick a certain Dean Nowitzki, and things start to turn around in Dallas. In Vancouver, well, that's a story for another time. And with that... This has been with the second pick, Steve Francis. For Justin McElroy, I'm Jeremy Allingham. We'll be back with who we got next, buddy. We've got Otis Thorpe versus his old team, the Detroit Pistons. We'll see if he gets his revenge. High drama. Join us for our next episode. Talk to you soon. I'm high, yeah, it's